joy as we approach your word, that we would see your word as God breathed, that this is your word talking to us and about us, and that we can apply it to our lives. We ask that we would have our hearts enlightened and our minds awakened to to understand in Jesus' name. Uh, There are several things that Jesus had to accomplish between the time that uh, that Judas left and the the time that uh, he was arrested. Uh, first, he had to prepare the disciples for his own departure. We saw that two weeks ago. What he did in order to prepare them, talking about the verse that Rick read this morning about preparing a, a place for them and that he was going to come back and so forth. Uh, next, he had to to make sure they understood <clears throat> what was coming in regards to the Holy Spirit, that what they should expect in regards to this comforter that he said was going to come, and that it would indwell them. This person, the third person of the Godhead, would indwell them, that he would live with them forever, and so forth. So we saw that last week. And now, in chapter 17... All that happened within chapters, well, the end of chapter 13 and then 14, 15, and 16. During those three and a half chapters, Jesus had to prepare the disciples for his departure and teach them regarding the Holy Spirit. And how would they know if it was the Holy Spirit speaking and not some other spirit? So, but starting in chapter 17, there's an increasing separation between him and the disciples. In In other words, what he is doing that's not directly affecting them, not right then. John chapter 17, <clears throat> verse 1, if you look there in your Bible, John chapter 17, the entire chapter is frequently referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus uh, because he was behaving as our high priest. When the high priest in the Old Testament went to the, to the holy place, the holiest of holies, once a year, he entered in with a sacrifice for his own sins first because he was a human being, the Old Testament high priests, and then entered in through the veil, underneath the veil, uh, to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And for a year, that was, that was uh, Yom Kippur, the uh, day of covering, the day of atonement. <clears throat> the, the Hebrew word for covering is Kopar, which that's why it comes out in Yom Kippur's the, the Day of Covering, the Day of Atonement. But he had to go in with a sacrifice for himself first, and his sacrifice that he brought in for the people was only good for a year, and they had to do it again and again and again. And when he died, a new high priest had to come up. And in Hebrews, we see the, the uh, <clears throat> in the book of Hebrews, we see Jesus as our high priest that went in once with an offering once forever and sat down having finished his work. Now it's, it's interesting to think back and think what's inside the tabernacle, what's inside the Holy of Holies. There was no chair in there. The, the, the only place a person could sit and they'd die if they did was the, was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. That was God's place. The, the, 
in the Psalms, God is referred to as he who dwells between the cherubims, the two cherubims that were on top of the mercy seat <clears throat> facing toward one another. That was God's seat. And yet in Hebrews it says he finished his work as our high priest and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. He was done. The high priest in the Old Testament never could do that. So the prayer that Jesus brought in chapter 17 <clears throat> encompasses his completion of what he had done through his disciples and toward the world and what he was about to accomplish and then his prayer for his disciples and for us. I don't know if you thought of that before, but in John chapter 17, we're going to see that Jesus prayed for you. <clears throat> I'm going to skim through this. <clears throat> I do want to point out that the Old Testament sacrifices were a substitute. In each case, the blood sacrifice was a substitute for the sinner. That you're recognizing, I deserve to die because of my sin. That's what the law of sin and death said. And Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, he says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And uh, when they brought this blood sacrifice from Leviticus says, I've given you the blood on the altar as, a, as an atonement for your souls, a covering for your souls. It was a substitute. So the Old Testament high priest brought a blood sacrifice, first as a substitute for himself, second as a substitute for the whole nation of Israel. Jesus needed no substitute for himself because he had a sinless life and he brought himself his own blood as a sacrifice as a substitute for the entire human race and it's good for us to remember there is no substitute for Jesus okay. and I mean that both ways there was no substitute to keep him from going to the cross and there's no substitute in our lives for him you either have him as your substitute at the cross or you don't there is no other thing. There is no other way. There is no other substitute. That's why Jesus could tell them in John chapter 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. If you think that's too firm, too harsh, well, talk to Jesus about it because he's the one that said it. Those are his words. <clears throat> I think it's important, too, to realize that in verse 3, if you look at John 17, 3, he says, this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, there's two ways to look at that. One is this is how you get life eternal, is to know Jesus. That's true. But that's not what he's talking about. It's an ongoing relationship he's talking about. The word there for know is the, the epigenosco. The gnosko knowledge means an experiential relationship, a knowledge uh, I could say, if somebody said, uh, well, my, my daughter asked me, do you know who George Clooney is? I thought for a while and said, is he an actor? And she was just laughing because to any young lady, everybody knows who George Clooney is. I, I kind of thought I knew he might be an actor, but that was it. I, I couldn't have brought up his face in my mind or anything. No, I don't know him. I kind of know who he is, and now I've seen one movie with him in it, which I thought was stupid, but that's okay. Uh, I think it was called where, Oh Brother Where Art Thou uh, but do I know him? No I don't do I know who he is? Yeah would I recognize his picture if I saw it? Yeah probably maybe um, but do I know him? No of course not and he doesn't know me we have no relationship 
Now in Spanish, it's an easy difference because they have two different words for no. They have saber, which means do you know about this? Are you, are you familiar with this idea? And they have conocer, means do you have a personal relationship with him? Do you know him personally? Have you met him? Have you talked to him? That makes it a real easy thing in that language. But in English, we got this one word no, and it gets things real confused. In Greek, they had two. They had the oida knowledge, which is just like the saber in Spanish, means you know about this. You have the uh, head knowledge, and they have genosco, which means just like the conocer in Spanish, it means do you know him personally? And in this particular passage, he's saying that we can ex experience that eternal life in the here and now by involving ourselves on a daily basis in that ongoing personal relationship with Jesus. Yes, you gain eternal life by entering into that relationship, but you experience that eternal life by experiencing that relationship, by engaging in that relationship on an ongoing basis. <clears throat> Further, in verses 14 through 17, if you drop down a bit here in chapter 17, in verse 14 he says, I've given them thy word, <clears throat> and the world has hated them because they were not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but thou should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy, thy truth. Thy word is truth. <clears throat> he says that he's given his word. Jesus is the word. We saw that in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then it drops down to verse 14 and says that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glorious at the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But here in John chapter 17, verses 14 through 17, he says that in his giving his word to his disciples, he took them out of the world in the sense that they're no longer of the world. They still have to live there. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. He said they're no longer of the world. And in verse 17, he says, that we're to be sanctified, that means set apart for God's service, means set apart as his private collection, so to speak, his private property, through his word. Now that fits John chapter 15, verse 3, that we already read, <clears throat> where he says, you, plural, speaking to the 11, this is after Judas left, he says, you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. That was the cleansing agent. That's what made them his. That's what set them apart as his property. And, and <clears throat> earlier he had told them that they were clean, but not all of them. You see, because Judas was still there when he said that back in, in John chapter 13. And it went on to say he knew who would betray him. So that's why he said, you're not all clean. But when Judas was gone in John 15, he says, you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. That's how we get into the, the body of Christ. We believe Jesus' promise. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him who sent me has, present tense, has everlasting life. Not will have it when he dies, provided he doesn't sin too much. No, now. You can enter in and have eternal life today, now, and have it and yet not experience it because you're not walking with the Lord. And that's what Jesus was getting at there in John 17, 3. And 
being in the word, it says that God says, uh, Jesus said to God, to God the Father, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. If you're not in the word, then you're, you're not walking with him. Sorry. Yeah, could you be in the word by reciting from memory? Yeah. Could you be in the word by listening to somebody on the radio? Yeah, potentially. But really it gets down to what am I doing personally? Am I engaging with God's word? Am I learning what it says and applying it to my life and allowing it to affect me? That's what it means to walk with Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus prayed for the unity of the church in the next few verses, starting in verse 18. I see I've managed to turn a page and get away from where I was we were reading. John chapter 17, verse 18, he says, As you have sent me into the world, even so I have also sent them into the world. Give that some thought. What God's purpose was in sending Jesus into the world is what Jesus' purpose is in leaving you in the world, though you're not of it. Give that some thought. And for their sakes, verse 19, I sanctify myself, I'm setting apart myself to God's service, that they also might be sanctified, set apart for his service, through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Who's that? That's you. Jesus is praying for you here. Look at it. Jesus is praying for you. And one of the things he prays, verse 21, that they all may be one, that's unity in the church, <clears throat> as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be one in us. Why? That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. <clears throat> this is one of the testimonies of the church at large. And the, the final thing he prays for him in verse 22, it says, Then the glory which thou gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and has loved me as I, if, as thou hast, as loved them as thou hast loved me. Verse twenty-four. This is the one I was thinking. He says, "I will, I will, I desire that, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world." <coughs> So, it's important for us to see that he's praying for us, that we can take this personally, that Jesus was definitely not just praying for his 11 disciples there, that he's praying for those who would believe through his word, through their word. That's us. Every one of you has believed because of what you read in the Bible, and it was all written out by his disciples, or others like them. <clears throat> But we saw that one of the things he wants for us is that we get to see his glory. That we'll be where he is and see him face to face. Jesus knew you before he created you. Now, a lot of you are thinking, well, he didn't actually create me. I was born. Okay, but Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus, I'll say Jesus because it is him, but it was uh, the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, and we found out in our studies of the Old Testament that the Jehovah of the Old Testament actually is Jesus. We found that out inescapably, that he appeared on earth, talked to people face to face, 
And here in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, he's talking to Jeremiah, who is very reluctant to take on this job of being a prophet for God. He says, don't send me, I'm too young. I don't know how old he was, but God says, don't tell me that. He says, before I created you, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I ordained you, I knew you, and I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. Now, if you think about people that th don't think a person is really human until they're physically born, Jeremiah 1.5 says that God's the one that formed them in the, in the womb. Sure, I understand pro procreation. I, yes, I understand genetics and so forth. But God still is the authority over all of it. And he says that that's his personal creation. He knew you before he created you, and he prayed for you before he went to the cross. That's something to think about. <clears throat> Well, the next thing they did in John chapter 18, verse 1, <clears throat> says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. Was, the Garden of Gethsemane was a nice place in the daytime. And when they weren't there getting ready to go to the cross, they used to, he liked to go there. It was like going to a park that you liked to go to. But... This time is different. <clears throat> I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26 gives more detail about what happened at Gethsemane. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. <clears throat> What's interesting? Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36, uh, says, Then came Jesus with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. Now he set down eight of the eleven. He said, You guys stay here. He took three, the ones he was closest to, James and Peter and John. They're the same ones that were on the Mount of Transfiguration with him. Now they're in Garden of Gethsemane with him. And even so, after he walked a little ways off from where the eight were, he left those three by themselves, and he walked just a bit further. But he said, pray with me, watch with me, wait. Because <clears throat> he took with him uh, Peter and James and John, well, the two sons of Zebedee, that was James and John. He began to be sorrowful and very heavy, de depressed, Verse 28, it says, Then said he to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry, he, tarry he, ye here and watch with me. So he went a little further, and it says, He fell on his face before the Father. He prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came back to the disciples and found him asleep. Said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went back and prayed again, saying, O oh, my father, if this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came back, found him asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. He left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words, came back and said, Well, sleep on, take your rest. 
The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. But then he said, Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. So he woke him up <coughs> and said, and turned to face the the enemy. They were coming. Uh, now let's back up a little bit and think about why we think, at least I think, uh, as, a, as a human, I tend to think that, well, yeah, he knew what was going to happen. He was going to be crucified. It's going to be terrible, and that's what he was worried about. Actually, I don't think that was it. I mean, sure, that's part of it. He was a human being. He feared pain just like anybody else. <clears throat> but if I look at he Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, For us to consider Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down on the right hand of God. Joy. If that's how he felt about what he was about to experience, that, that he saw the joy at the end of the tunnel and considered the pain not to be considered and the shame of being stripped naked and beaten, treat, treated like a criminal and hung up to die as... He says he despised the shame, didn't care what people thought. If that's not what he was worried about, then what was he worried about? Well, <clears throat> if you look at uh, Matthew chapter 27, just turn one more page forward. Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Actually, two more pages, I guess. <clears throat> After they'd crucified him, in verse 46... Uh, it says, well, in verse 45, it says, from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. There's a three-hour period of darkness. It says, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? <clears throat> he was quoting Psalm 22.1. If I go back and read Psalm 22.1, it turns out the entire Psalm 22 is about the crucifixion. None of the things there happened to David, but Psalm 22.1 says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? None of this stuff happened to David. It talks about his hands and feet being pierced. It talks about them stripping off his garments and casting lots for his clothing and staring at him and that his mouth was dry and he couldn't swallow, his tongue was stuck to his mouth. Uh, all that stuff in Psalm 22 is about the crucifixion. None of it was about David. It's easy to miss that when we read the Psalms. <clears throat> but if I look at that and realize that for the only time in all of time, in the history of the universe, God the Father and God the Son were separate. I don't mean just in separate places. Like when Jesus was baptized, God the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was on earth and the Holy Spirit was coming down as a dove for the only time we got to see the Trinity in three places at once. But that's, there was no separation. God was being pleased with his son at that point. In, in Matthew 27, verse 46 the 45 and 46, God turned his back on the Son and would not look at him because he had become our sin. Not a sinner. Jesus never sinned. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says that he who knew no sin became sin 
for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And what Jesus feared, what he was sweating over, in Luke it says that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. It doesn't say that it was blood. It says it was like blood. He was sweating so heavily it was flowing from him as if it was blood. A lot of people misread that and think it says that he sweated blood. That's not what it says. You do what you want with that. Regardless of what his sweat was like, the issue <clears throat> was that he was fearing being separated from God, God the Father. This fellowship that he'd known throughout eternity, he was going to be completely separated from as God rejected him because he rejects the sin of humanity, as God judged him because he's judging the sin of humanity, that he truly became our substitute, that he died in your place, he died in my place. And that's why Galatians chapter 2 can say, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And that's why uh, Galatians 2.19 says, I, through the law, through the fulfillment of the law by Jesus at the cross, I, through the law, am dead to the law. God's law looks at you now and says, he's dead, she's dead. I have nothing to say to her. Since I do not frustrate the grace of God if righteousness came by works of, uh, if, yeah, if justification came by works uh, of the law, then Christ died in vain. If you want to think Jesus died for nothing, then you can go ahead and think that your works are going to earn a place with God. They can't. <clears throat> now, it's difficult to, for me to understand how the Trinity could be separated like that at all, especially since Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, flat out says that the Son, predicting the, says that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the, his government, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Uh, he just said that the, the, the Son, the promised Son, would be called the Everlasting Father. Right then I give up. I don't understand how the Son can be the Father, and yet Jesus said the Father who sent me is greater than I. Sorry, I don't have to understand the Trinity. I just have to be faithful to teach it. That is what it says. There's other people in the Bible that didn't understand what God sent them to say. Daniel chapter 12, verse 8, Daniel complained that the, the final prophecy that God gave him uh, was for the very end of time. It was for the tribulation saints to understand. I, and I don't understand it either, but Daniel says, I, I don't understand this. And God basically told him, write it down, run along. It wasn't given for you. It was given for the people of the end times. It, you can read it. That's what it says. He says, write it down, close the book, and go your way. Run along. Run along. I wasn't, I wasn't giving it to you. You don't have to understand it. This is a need-to-know thing. It's compartmentalized. I, there's things in the book of Revelation and Daniel that, no, I don't understand it. I see it. I know what it says. I can see how it fits in with the rest of the scripture, but if you ask me for details on it, I'm going to shrug my shoulders and say, I don't know. And guess what? I don't have to know. God doesn't say that I have to understand. He does say that I have to faithfully teach what he says. One last thing to consider about the separation that Jesus feared so deeply. He saw it as a horrible terrible terrible thing <clears throat> we tend to take it lightly because we've never experienced the fellowship that he had with the father 
And we say, oh, I have fellowship with the Lord all the time. Yeah, but you, our level of fellowship is so shallow. It's like a little child saying, of course I know my dad. Yeah, how well do you know him? Do you well know as well as your, as your mom knows him? No, you don't. You know, you see him as this guy that gets up in the morning, pats you on the head, and goes off to work. She sees him intimately that she knows his whole life inside and out. Well, Jesus knew the Father more like that, far beyond that. But so for him to be separated at all was far more dreadful than we would think of it in our minds. When I was not a believer, yes, I was separated from fellowship with God, but I'd never had fellowship with him, so it meant nothing to me. I didn't care. I was an atheist. Okay, But as a believer... I would dread being separated from fellowship with God. I don't want to be separated from him. And yet, I go ahead and sin, even knowing that all sin separates me temporarily from fellowship with God. But we take that lightly. Why? Because we don't understand fellowship with him in the first place, even as deep as some of us have had fellowship with him. But as horrible as he saw it, that full separation that Jesus experienced only lasted for three hours for him. If he hadn't done that, it would last for eternity for us. And by that time, we would understand the difference because we'd be in the lake of fire. Okay. What he went through was like ours, separation, but only temporary. And it was much worse than what we can imagine because I've never carried the burdens of the sin of humanity and that's what Jesus was getting ready to do not just to carry on his shoulders he became the sin of the whole human race he hates sin he despises sin and he became that sin so that God could pour out his judgment on him instead of us that's what was happening at Gethsemane and that's what happened at the cross <clears throat> So Jesus passed on through Gethsemane. <clears throat> After we saw Jesus agonizing in the dark night of Gethsemane, anticipating the cross, and we saw the disciples unable to even stay awake and pray with him, <clears throat> we see him awakening them and then turning to face the advancing enemies. Now there's an interesting incident here involving the soldiers who are sent to arrest him. Now, these were not Roman soldiers. We tend to think of it as Roman soldiers. No, they weren't. It specifically says these were soldiers from the temple. These were the temple guards. These were the soldiers sent from, it says, the high priests, excuse me, the chief priests and the elders of the people. What, what's the importance of that? Well, it means that as a nation... Israel was rejecting Jesus, the elders of the people, the uh, body politic, if you want to call it that. It'd be, you know, when Alexander IV sold, uh, I think it was Alexander IV of Russia, sold uh, Alaska territory to the United States, they didn't hold a vote. They didn't find out what everybody thought. He had the authority to make a decision, and he made a decision. And I'm really glad he did. I'm glad we have that territory. But when the elders of the people collectively sent soldiers to arrest Jesus, it means that the nation of Israel collectively was going to be held accountable for their actions. Just as, you know, we could get into a war that none of us wanted because the politicians decide it's a good idea. Some of you remember some wars like that. Some of you have been in some wars like that. But that's what happened. It says these soldiers were sent by the chief priests and the elders of the people. That's in 
uh, Matthew 26, starting in verse 47. <clears throat> Matthew 26. Uh, starting in verse 47, it says that while he yet spoke, when Jesus told the disciples, wake up, get going, we're going to, the betrayer is here. While he yet spoke, Judas, one of the twelve, came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the elders of the people. <clears throat> now he that betrayed him, Judas, had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, that is the one. Hold him fast. So arrest that guy. <clears throat> and forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Jesus knew exactly what was going on, and he said, Friend, wherefore art thou come? In another passage, it says, Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? He called out the gross inappropriateness of taking an intimate greeting like this and turning it into a betrayal. That's where we get the phrase, the Judas kiss, or the kiss of death, that we, we still use today, that somebody's betraying you, they're acting friendly, but they're damaging you. <clears throat> well, in this particular case, that's exactly what it was. But as this happened, it says these people came, <clears throat> and you know, if you'll turn with me, hold your finger here and Matthew 26, we're coming back, but turn back to John chapter 18. I want you to see something special that happened there. John chapter 18, uh, verses 4 through 13. John chapter 18, verse uh, 4, it says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth, he stepped out in front of the disciples who were probably getting pretty nervous. Here's this whole crowd of soldiers with torches and clubs and swords and so forth. They knew what was happening. They're getting pretty scared. But Jesus stepped out in front of them and said, Whom seek ye? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I am he. Now look closely at your Bible, and I believe, as it is in mine, you'll see that the word he is in italics. That means it's not in the original. Some of the times when they put something in and it's in italics, that's because it wouldn't work in English without that word being inserted. It, this is what it meant in Greek, but without that, it, it wouldn't make sense in English. Well, and this phrase that's translated I am he here is used else, elsewhere also the same way, that the he isn't in italics. So I don't want to put too much weight on this, but something happened really interesting. It says, he said, I am he, and Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, again the he is in italics, they went backward and fell to the ground. Now if all he was doing is identifying himself, then why did they all fall backwards to the ground? I've, I've been told, I don't know how they prove it, but I've been told there's over 200 uh, antagonists there. Uh, but it's been conjectured that the reason he is not in the original is because what he actually said is, I am. Anybody recognize that name? The Old Testament name, I am? Tell them I am sent you. I am that I am. That's who's sending Moses. And Jesus used the, the great I am seven times in the book of John. 
the most famous of them being John 8:57, where he said, Behold, I said, Before Abraham was, I am. And the people rightly understood that he was claiming to be God, and they picked up stones to try to kill him. And he just walked away. They, didn't, they couldn't touch him. It wasn't his time yet. <clears throat> if that's what's happening here, then it might explain why this whole bunch of antagonists, rather than surging forward and either beating him or tying him up or something, fell backwards to the ground. And notice what happened next. He asked them again. He had to remind them why they were there. I, I think if he didn't ask them again, they'd have got up and took off. He wanted to keep them focused. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who are you here to see? They said, well, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I told you I'm him. Now let these other guys go. And then what'd they do? They tied his hands. His hands? He didn't use his hands to knock you down, guys. He spoke and knocked you down. What, because they didn't invent duct tape yet, so you're not going to be able to close his mouth? What's the deal here? Well, I don't know. I do know that something special happened there. This, and by the way, don't get the idea this is like slain in the spirit or something. That's baloney, and that's not what this is. These were enemies of God falling backwards to the ground. They didn't get slain in the spirit. They got body slammed. If anybody ever watched World Wide West Wrestling or whatever you call that uh, entertainment, the whole mob fell backwards to the ground. They got body slammed by Jesus. These were the enemies of Christ. They were getting a warning of the unspeakable authority and power of the incarnate God that they were rejecting. And I, I think it is worth noting that he had to remind them why they were there. And then they cranked up their collective courage and they arrested him. They tied his hands. At some point in this exchange, Judas identified Jesus, Jesus by greeting him with a kiss. I, I don't know where that fits in. <clears throat> I don't know what the chronology is on that particular passage. But after that point, Jesus ignored Judas. He never said another word to him. After rebuking Judas, saying, Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? How inappropriate can you get? After that, he ignored Judas, and he faced the mob, and he dealt with them alone. And we see in Matthew 26, 56, if you want to turn back to Matthew, chapter 26, and verse 56, <clears throat> it says, Whoop, I'm in the wrong chapter, I think. Nope, that is it. It says, all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then it says, all the disciples forsook him and fled. And that's in agreement with Mark chapter uh, 14, verse 50. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's not right. Yeah, 14, verse 50. It says, as soon as the, these people arrested Jesus, all the disciples took off and fled. And it says that that was fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus had warned them in Mark chapter 14, verse 27, fulfilling an Old Testament prophet. He says that the, the, the shepherd would be smitten and the sheep would be scattered. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 says that the, the shepherd would be smitten, the sheep would be scattered. And in Mark 14, 27, Jesus said that fulfilled that prophecy. He said that the disciples would be scattered when he was arrested. <clears throat> and he called that specific prophecy, uh, cited that particular prophecy from Zechariah. <clears throat> now, there's some things for us to learn here. Uh, we're, we're not going to get into the crucifixion, the trial, or anything like that today. We're going to talk about that next week. There were several things that Jesus had to do on the way to the cross. 
And this sums up what he's done where the disciples were involved. But I think it's good for us to stop and think, how can this apply to us? Is it just a biblical drama so that we can vicariously sweat with Jesus or we can cluck our tongues over, oh, why did the disciples just run off? Why couldn't they just stay with him? Why couldn't they stay awake and pray? I would have just stayed awake and prayed. No, you wouldn't have. You're the same kind of mud that they were. were. So am I. I'm tired of the same brush they are. Jesus said that the shepherd would be smitten and the sheep would be scattered. We would have been scattered too. Okay, <clears throat> It's not just a biblical drama for us to think about. For one thing, I think it's important for us to remember that in that darkness of Gethsemane, only Jesus could prevail over the darkness. Why? Because light is what dispels darkness. That's the only thing that dispels darkness. And Jesus is the light of the world. In John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world, and he that cometh unto me shall not walk in darkness. Okay? If you're going through hard times, Jesus is the light of the world. If you're looking at darkness in your life, recognize that Jesus is the only source of light. He's the only one that can prevail over darkness. <clears throat> the darkness of the fear alone at Gethsemane was too much for the disciples. What was about to come, the trial and the abuse and the beatings and the scorn and the crucifixion and his death was more than they could handle at all. They just, they, they ran away. They couldn't handle it. <clears throat> Some of them came trickling back and and watch from a distance. We see that. But I think it's important for us to recognize that we're no more capable in our own strength of withstanding the attacks of the enemies than they were. The 11 disciples that knew him face to face ran away. They failed to stand fast. We're told to stand fast, but we have an advantage they didn't have. They didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. Remember that they fled here in, in this passage. But in Acts chapter 2, they preached fearlessly. And in Acts chapter 4, they were preaching again. They were arrested. Later on, all of them, with possible exception of one, all of them were eventually martyred, died for their faith, and did so courageously. They weren't running for their life and having to trip and get caught and beat to death by the mob. No, they, they stood and stood fast and shined for Jesus. The only thing that dispels darkness is light, and we can either allow the light of Jesus to flow through us or not. <clears throat> we confess that we cannot serve in our own strength, but it does not deny that we are called to press on and go ahead and serve. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. First, you know, we like the first part of that where it says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To them that love him, we stop right there. The rest of that phrase says, to them that are the called according to his purpose. And it goes on in the next two verses, it says, if you're saved, you're called. Yes, you are the called. <clears throat> we are called to be his ambassadors. We're called to function as his representatives here on earth. But we're not called to do it on our own. Nobody is sent into the battle without him right beside you, without him in you, without him giving you the strength and the courage. Does it mean that we should, you know, Jesus is the one indwelling us, and he's the one that knocked down all those soldiers? Does that mean that we should expect to knock down soldiers? No. I mean, that'd be great if we could all go out and speak and knock down the enemy. That's not the way it works. 
it means that we're not to fear the results of standing for Jesus. It may be costly. It may be painful. It may, we may be rejected by everyone that knows us. And it was costly and painful for Jesus as well. And he was rejected by most of the people. Remember the, the disciples that were scattered and fled that night were later transformed by his Holy Spirit and they preached fearlessly. And it turned out to be costly and painful in each of their lives. But they lived through that hardship with joy, knowing that they were working with Jesus. That's what we're called to do, is to work with Jesus. We're not called to work out and work by ourselves. He says, come work with me. He says, take my yoke upon me and upon you and learn of me. The word for yoke there, I'm told, means a double harness. It means the kind of yoke where two guys could get under the same yoke and and collectively pull a real heavy load because two people working side by side could get a lot more done if they're pulling the same load. And Jesus says for you to take the other half of his yoke on you and work with him. That's what he's called us to do. So let's set our hearts on the goal of working with Jesus and experience the joy of knowing that what we're doing today is going to be valuable for eternity. Let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we'd ask you to, that you'd raise us up to be your disciples, that you'd fill us with your spirit and strengthen us with your joy. We ask that you'd let us be increasingly aware of your presence and leading in our daily lives. We ask that you'd pour your love through us to the world around us and let us feed them with the bread of life and the water of life. In Jesus' name. <clears throat>